These guys never cease to amaze me. Um, aren't you thankful for these guys? Yeah. They, um, lyrics that I did not know existed um, ever in songs like that. And so, um, so let me go ahead and address the awkward moment in the room. Some of you guys are holding communion elements and thinking, what on earth am I about to do with these things? All right, so hold them um, where you have them. Set them down. Try not to kick them. Um, if you do kick them, that's okay. We have extras. If you've already taken communion, that's okay too. Um, but uh, we, we're going to take communion at the end of the, of the service today um, after the text. It just, I think it'll be fitting and, and you'll understand why after that. So if you have already taken it, uh, may the Lord have met with you in that moment. <laughs> All right. Uh, so anyways, with that said, um, Revelation has been awesome. It's just been awesome for us to go through as a church. I hope that you have enjoyed it. It has been the oddest book I've certainly um, ever been through. Um, but the single best chapter in all of the Bible, in my opinion, is going to be next week. And so make sure that you are here. It's the most comforting. I really do believe it's the most comforting chapter in the entire Bible. And so, we'll, But to get there, uh, we've got to go through something else first, okay? So... Let's give a recap. Let's go ahead and give the recap of where we've been. By the way, my name's Troy Nicholson. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, if I haven't met you. I'm glad you're here with us today to journey through. Uh, here is where we've been through in our journey through Revelation. Uh, we've gone through chapter 1. Jesus said, hey, this book's going to be about these soon coming things. Chapter 2 and 3 was the seven letters to the seven churches that you'll remember. Chapter 4 and 5, we saw the throne of heaven and what heaven really is all about and saw that activity there. Chapter 6 and 7, we saw the seven seals along with the seven trumpets in 8 and 9, which is the, the judgments of God, if you will. Uh, some believe those are the simultaneously saying the same thing. Some believe they're different events. That's okay, um, wherever you fall on that spectrum. Uh, but we, that's where we saw the asteroids and the war and all of the things that you think of when people talk about Revelation. Uh, chapter 10 and 11, there was de de the delay of the end. So when does the end come? Well, there was this delay, and in that delay, God was being gracious. And He said, hey, listen, I, I've always granted a grace moment, giving opportunity. Uh, so we saw that. Chapter 11 and 12, the seventh trumpet, the end finally began. You all all remember, again, we've joked about it the past couple of weeks. That is the moment where Safe Haven Church pulled off the song Midnight Cry. And it was spectacular for all the Southern Baptist gospel folk in here. Uh, it, was, it was a good moment. Uh, chapter 13, we saw the Antichrist, the co-Antichrist, the Mark of the Beast. Everybody started freaking out about 666. Macy Lane actually texted me today, uh, not today, this week during a test. And I believe it was in, I don't know, math or something. And she said, Dad, I have to answer a question and it's on page 666. Should I answer it? And of course, I said, no way, leave that one alone, right? Uh, but no, we talked about that. Chapter 14... An hour of God's judgment, reaping harvest. Tyler Lee led us through that. Uh, chapter 15 and 18, this heavy dose of wrath. And what does the wrath of God mean? Um, and so then we got to chapter 19a, which was last week. Christ's wedding day, which is oddly enough our wedding day as believers. And so we were encouraged in that moment. And today, chapter 19 and 20. You ready? Let's do this. Uh, chapter 19 and 20, we're going to hit um, Armageddon. And so the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, the judgment of the great throne of God, oh, we're going to find all of these things. And if you've ever wondered what Armageddon really is all about, then that's what the text is going to lead us in today is, what is 
Armageddon. You've seen the movies, you've seen the posters, you've seen all those things, but what is it? What really is it? And so we're going to cut to the chase and see what is the who and what of Armageddon. Let's journey through this text together. Um, first, who? Who is Armageddon really all about is where the text is going to take us first. So in Revelation 19 verse 11 it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, John says, and I saw a white horse. So you've got this kingly steed, if you will. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. What Jesus said would happen is going to happen. He's faithful, he's true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So in other words, at Armageddon... Christ's patience is over. There is no more patience with Christ. He's graciously patient, but at this moment it's over and justice will reign. His eyes, John said, are like a flame of fire. He has these penetrating eyes that are able to peer through. And on his head are many diadems, crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. In other words, John says there's this element of Christ that no man really can ever fully comprehend. Even John in this vision says, there's something about him that I still can't explain. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which is called the Word of God. In other words, so John says, in this final moment, the fullness of the Godhead will be seen in Christ. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white Horses. So at some point at the end, there's this church following Christ behind him, but oddly enough, not his soldiers. Did you catch that? They're not arrayed with swords or anything like that. They're in white robes. And so the church is following Christ in the end, but again, not as soldiers, as spectators of this end event. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. <laughs> so in other words, at the end, if you want to know what Armageddon is all about, I know you've, some of you guys have probably seen the movies and all the crazy chaos and all this kind of stuff. John doesn't picture the, uh, paint that picture at all, does he? Basically what he says is in the end, Christ... The same one who spoke with one world, one word spoke the world into existence in the end will also with one word wipe out. It's, 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 it's more of an execution than a war. It's Christ speaks and the end is done with, with one word and one utterance. That is a pretty powerful flex of power if you ask me. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger has nothing on that with his giant traps. Well, they're flabby traps now, but you know what I mean. This, this is the Christ that we worship. He is the ultimate warrior. And what the picture being painted here by John in Revelation is, our God is not Dr. Phil. <laughs> He's Rocky Balboa. Our God Christ is not Gandhi. He really is the ultimate warrior if you watch WWE wrestling growing up. How many of you guys watched WWE growing up? Okay. You may think Hulk Hogan was the greatest, but he was not. You may think Andre the Giant was the greatest, but he was not. The ultimate warrior was the single greatest wrestler in history. Amen, church. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. This is the picture of Christ. 
He's not a wimpy, mamby-pamby, wishy-washy, robe-wearing, lovey-dovey. In the end, he flexes his might, not like the movie Still Magnolias, but like the movie Braveheart. If you want to know what Armageddon is, that's what it is. And so that's the who. Armageddon really is all about Christ. Now what's the what? Let's go to the what. Well, the what of Armageddon is that sinners... And sin will one day face a horrific, and but a horrifically justified holocaust. Now that is also Armageddon. By definition, holocaust means a mass-scale slaughter. Okay. Now I know in our context when we say the word holocaust, we instantly think of what happened with the Jews, which was an unjust moment. But I can't think of a better word than the word holocaust. So be careful not to weigh in our cultural understanding with negative connotations of holocaust because that's not what I'm saying here. What happens in the end is you're going to see Armageddon really is this one moment that is a justified and right and holy holocaust. And so this is kind of going to be a litmus test, if you will. So I'll be interested to see how this plays out in your brains as we go through this text. As we go through this text, it will be a litmus test really to whether your mind values the glory of God over the glory of mankind. And so when we read this, feel how you wrestle with this text. Okay, so if you've ever wondered about the Armageddon, the who is it's all about Jesus. Now the what. What is it all about? Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, and said, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against Christ, who was seated on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who was in his presence, that had done great signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. That was chapter 13 on November 8th. If If you're like, what is that all about? Go check it out on the website. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So again, what John says is in this moment, it's far less of a struggling or wrestling against good versus evil, and it's far more of an instantaneous dismantling of uh, Satan and his followers. It's instantaneous. And it's, it's kind of like, um, if you will, that, that two-year-old that kind of bows up on you. And so you're in a room with a two-year-old and they want to wrestle with you and they kind of bow up on you. And it's fun and it's cute and all that kind of stuff. And what John is saying is in the end, Satan will be like that two-year-old that kind of flexes up and bows up on you, but you know you can dismantle in a moment and that's what Armageddon is. It's the moment where Christ dismantles Satan like a two-year-old and like the two-year-old that he really is. Verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Collectively, gross. But nonetheless, 
what's going on here? What, what, what is John really getting at? We know the who's about Christ. We know the what has to do something with this justified holocaust. Well, again, this is what the battle of Armageddon is. So why did John tell us this? Why did the angels tell John this? And ultimately, according to chapter 1, why did Jesus tell the angels to tell John to tell us this? Well, I don't think the point is about gore. And I don't think the point is about fear. All the things that the movies are, are, are prone to do stir us up to gore and fear. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is just simply this, church. There is no God like our God, Christ Jesus. That's the point. And one day, all nations will bow to Him as King, as ruler. All one, day, one day, everyone will be forced to acknowledge this moment, and this is the summation of the end. In other words, Christ's holiness one day will be rightfully avenged. It's, it's, it's going to be done. And I ask you before I read that to feel yourself wrestling. Do you feel yourself wrestling with that? With this, is this justified? Is, how is all this going on in, in light of a, a good God? The question a lot of times people say is, how could a good God let such drastic things happen? And I think when we say that, what we're doing is we're, we're showing that we don't really understand the fullness of God's goodness. And so if you will... We have a bunch of lights up here. Let's imagine for a moment that this wall right here was just solid white. And in the midst of that solid white, I walked up there and I grabbed one of the markers that had kind of the big fat tip. And I just put a dot, not square center, but I put that one dot kind of right there on the right side. Now all the OCD people in the room just had a heart attack. You're not breathing properly in the moment. But imagine I did that. So now I took something that was perfectly pure and I have jacked it up, hadn't I? I've made it wonky. I've taken something that was perfect and pure and I have added something that's imperfect and impure. That's God's holiness. A lot of times we think about God in this Okay, he's kind of good, kind of bad, kind of the yin-yang, and he'll weigh the good and the bad, and he'll let some bad in. No, no, no. He is perfectly holy. And Revelation says, therefore, nothing, nothing impure can ever enter into his presence. No one who ever has one stained dot can ever enter into his presence. And if he allows that to occur, then he himself lets go of his own holiness and allows himself to become stained, imperfect, which he can't do. And so when we read Revelation, we've got to read it through that lens. Why does he allow all of these things to occur? To stand for his own holiness. And so as we read through this, this is what's going on. Christ's holiness one day will be avenged. And so before the ascension, I guess what we're saying before we go into this rest of the text, is before the ascension into heaven, before the, the cross and the death and the burial and resurrection, we saw Jesus coming onto the scene humbly riding on a what? A donkey. 
But now that's not the picture here. At the descension, where he comes from the ascension down to us, he's not riding humbly on a donkey anymore, but he's riding powerfully on a white stallion avenging his own holiness. That's what's going on in this text. He's gone from humiliation to exaltation. He's gone from laughable almost, if you will, to powerful. He's gone from conquerable to victorious. And so what we learn about this and what we should know from Armageddon through this passage is just this. It's on your handout. It's on everything that we've ever put up. It's on the foyer out front. It's on our website. The whole point of Armageddon is one day we will see the triumph of the Lamb. From the cross to the crown. That's our Lord. Now we get to the 10,000 year reign. There's a big theological debate here. And it's a wonderful biblical truth. Let's look at this. This gets us into chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. That's going to be the first time that a thousand years is mentioned six times in this passage. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Can you imagine what life would be like without Satan and his influence? Can you imagine how awesome that would be? That's where John goes next. Verse 4. When that happened, when Satan was bound in this thousand years, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of His Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, have you heard thousand several times now? Um, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Don't get lost in that. talks about Noah's grandsons. To gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Everybody have that squared away and filed away now. You got it all figured out, right? There's a lot going on in that passage. So really what's being said here. Now this can get real fun, especially if you like graphs. And this can also get real fun, especially if you like theological stuff. Because really, in that passage, speaking of in the end, there'll be this thousand-year reigning period. Okay, so we've gone through tribulation, all this crazy stuff. We've got to Armageddon. Now, now what is this thousand-year reign? Is it on earth? Is it in heaven? What, what is it? And we're going to go through this really, really fast. Uh, but I think it would be a disservice if we don't go through it. 
So this is a big theological debate, and basically what this thousand-year reign could be in one of three different ways. The first group of people are going to say, okay, well, this is called the premillennial reign of Christ. Now, if you want to take a picture of this at the end, you can feel free to do that. Um, it's going to be a lot going on here. This is the one probably most people have heard about at the end of times. So at the end of times, some people believe that this passage is saying that Christ re will return first for His church. How many of you, by show of hands real high, have heard of uh, the rapture? Okay. okay, this is where this comes from. Okay, this line of thought here. So the line of thought would be that uh, Christ at the cross occurred, then there is this church age. At the end of the church age, there will be a rapture. So the church will be just snapped out, sucked up into the sky. Um, so we got some little silhouettes of some people flying here. So there's three different views of that too. So some people will say that the church is raptured before the tribulation occurs. So all the things that you've read about, we've read about and studied, the church will escape that. Another group says that it will be snatched up in the middle of that. Another group says that it will be snatched up at the end of the tribulation. So you've got these things going on. You've got the church age, then the tribulation, the rapture occurs. Then Armageddon that we just read about will happen. At the end of that, Satan will be bound and there will be a thousand years of earthly peace. Unlike the world has ever seen before. The lion and the lamb lay together here on earth, if you will. Okay? At the end of that, there's a thousand years, very literal, to the day, boom, the moment that ends, then Christ comes back, there's a great judgment, and at the end of the great judgment begins the new heavens and the new earth, which is chapter 21 next week. That is view number one. Everybody got it? All right. <laughs> just for kicks and giggles, and some people are already giggling, we just went over an entire semester of seminary. All right? That's semester one. Let's go to semester two. This is another view. Second view would be, okay, no, it's, it's, it's not that. It's post-millennialism, meaning that Christ will return this millennium reign at the end of the church age. So he doesn't come before it, he comes at the end of it. What you'll see is we don't have three little guys flying in this one, do we? All right? Because in this view, there is no rapture. Now, just for, again, fun kicks and giggles, there's only one place in the Bible that the word rapturo is even used, and the word rapturo is actually a Latin word. Okay? So, for those who, who hang on to that, it's just a view, but this one says there's not really a rapture, there is a catching up with Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean a snatching up. It just means the end, the culmination, the summation of all times. We're following? Tracking? All right. So the point of that is, in this view, there's a thousand-year literal reign that does happen on earth. But what that is, is not Christ coming to rule and reign over the earth. It's the church. And the church will experience a thousand-year revival like has never seen before. And in that, the gospel will be spread to the ends of the world in such a way that there'll be an unparalleled expression of grace. So in revival, it will feel like a thousand years of peace, but nonetheless a literal thousand years. Do you get the distinction? View one, Christ really is sitting on a throne. View two, Christ really not sitting on a throne. The church is ruling and reigning in an unparalleled revival for a thousand years. At the end of that, boom, that's when Christ comes back all in one fell swoop. Second coming, tribulation, Armageddon, judgment, bam, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Got it? Semester number three. All right, here we go.
Semester number three is called amillennialism. And amillennialism literally means that there's not a millennial reign. So it means that Christ will return whenever He pleases. And the word millennium is just a symbolic word for a period of time, if you will, an age. Right? So the thousand years is it's not even literal reign, whether it's church or whether it's anything. The whole point is John is just saying from heaven, God is preparing the earth for the end in an age, in a millennium, if you will. All right? So at the end of that comes the second coming, the tribulation, the Armageddon, the judgment all at once, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Do we stand up for which one you want to believe in? Or do we, do we take a test now? Do we offer lots? Okay, so we get to the end of all of this and ask the question, so what does SHC do with this theological conundrum? I actually had that texted to me this week. Wasn't that right, Michael? Uh, that question came to me. That, where, do, where does safe haven fall on this? Here's what I'm going to say about this. Here's where safe haven falls. Um, the end is going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. However it plays out. It is going to be spectacular. And one day, Christ will indeed split the sky and we'll see Him in all of His glory. That's what I know about the end. That's where we stand as a church. And so the point is, of all of this is, because of this, because one day Christ will be seen for all His glory, don't trample on the Lord's grace while He's being gracious. That's the point. Don't belittle it. The Lord is being gracious and not returning now for whatever reason, but most importantly, to give us a gracious moment to see Him in all of His glory before He busts through the sky. And so what I'm saying is this, I think we can also see in this passage that there's no such thing as annihilationism and or fatalism. That we can learn from this passage. The end is coming and the end is not that you'll just kind of dissolve into the demagogue or just kind of become part of the air. We do know that. We don't just die and just from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, and we just become a part of Mother Nature. That's, that we can know. It's, it's not that. In the end, there's only eternal paradise or eternal punishment. That's what we can see through this text. And in His grace, He's warned us of this. In His grace, He's pleaded with us over this. And in His grace, He's offered a way of redemption through the Son. He's offered us hope. That's the point of all of this. And the worst part of eternal punishment will not be that it's dark, that it's fiery, that it stings, that it's... That's not the worst part of eternal punishment. The worst part of eternal punishment for those who don't believe in Christ is they will forever live with the fact that Christ was gracious to plead with me, come, and I didn't, and I trampled on His grace. That'll be the worst part. He told me He was Lord, and I didn't believe Him as Lord. He told me to trust in His work, and I didn't trust in His work. And living forever with that thought that I had an opportunity to trust in His finished work, and I didn't, is the worst part of eternal punishment. 
But just because it's a worse part doesn't mean it's not real. And that's the point of this text. Is John going, I'm telling you, this is coming. Jesus told an angel to tell me and I saw the vision and now I'm telling you, don't get lost into whether we're going to break the law of gravity and fly up through the sky and be like Superman and get lost in whether it's... Don't get lost in all that. Get lost in Christ is Lord. Believe in Him. Trust in Him and receive His grace because one day He's splitting the sky and we'll go, you are glorious just like I said a thousand years ago. That's the point. Now, let's wrap up the text. We get now to the great white throne judgment. The day that every human will face a trial before Christ based on works. So, for everybody who's always heard the phrase, well, works don't really matter. They, they do matter. They don't save you. But they matter. And this gets to chapter 20, verse 11, as we conclude. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open, multiple books. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Before we get to the greatest of all chapters in the Bible, we have to go through this chapter. And as a church... Safe Haven will not skip around over things that we don't find comfortable. Every word is God's Word. So we chew through it, we put on our big boy pants, and we look at it. Now here's what's going on in this passage. In the end, there will be this one grand legal case that every human will stand face to face, eyeball to eyeball, with the God that created them. And the picture in this passage is this. A lot of times we think of the end of time somewhat like um, we stand before God and He pulls out like a little scroll or something. He's like, here's the scroll. And here's the list of things that you've done. Good, bad. Let's kind of judge this. And our scroll's about this long. But that's the picture we kind of get of this judgment moment. The picture here is multiple books are opened. And so one day, here's what it looks like. I, I stand before God and, and I walk in and, and I look at Him. And I'm not walking in before a little scroll. I walk in to a grand library. And there's a library and He says, Hey, Troy, sit down. I sit down. Book one flips through. Every deed, every thought, every secret longing, every action, every use of funds, every use of language, every moment of my life is unfolded in this moment. And it's not weighed against your holiness and your action and deeds. It's laid against His perfection. 
This is the picture that in this moment, this occurs and it's flipping through. And if in, oh, by the way, I hope you caught that. It's book one. That was the first 10 minutes of your life, Troy. <laughs> book two. And it unfolds in this way is this picture. And at the end, it's not that we'll plead our case and go, well, I sure did a lot of good things. It's in that moment, every mouth will be shut and there's no one who will say, see, I did a pretty good job. At the end, everyone will go, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to say. You just unfurled a whole library. And so it's not that in the end we have one dot that the Lord has to somehow erase. It's that we dotted the sucker up so much, it's almost like we just took black paint and was like, here, this is what my life looks like. And for those whose names are not found in the, lake, in the book of life, it's eternal punishment forever. That's the great white throne judgment. And the fact is, no one will be able to argue as piles and piles and miles and miles of pages are stacked up against you. But, but for the believer, for the one who's placed in their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this moment is going to be awesome. <laughs> and it's going to be awesome for Jesus, first and foremost. It'll be awesome for us as a byproduct, but it is going to be awesome for Jesus. And here's why. Because at the end of that, there's this special book for believers called this book of life. So here's the way it plays out for the believer. We walk into the same room and God goes, hey, sit down. And it's God, right? You sit down. <laughs> You're not like, oh, I think I'll stand, God. I mean, when God says sit down, so, you, so, so we sit down and, and he pulls off book one and he goes, let's, let's look at some stuff. And he pulls it off and we sit there shuddering going, I know how many dots I got. And this is about to be a mess. And we bow our head and the Lord opens it up and He goes, that's pretty, that's pretty wonderful. <laughs> Page two. That's pretty spectacular. Page three. Whoa! I, that's awesome. Page four, and we begin to wonder what on earth is going on. He must have picked up somebody else's book. He did not pick up my book. And so we get up from our chair and we, we peek over his shoulder and we look. And for the believer in the book of life, we realize that every page talks about Jesus. And it says, Troy Nicholson, because of his faith, looks just like Jesus. Page two. Redeemed only through the blood of Christ. Page three. Just as righteous as my son. Page four. Substitution applied. Page six. 
a ransom paid. Page 7, all glory be to Christ on His behalf. Page 10,967, which occurs in the first five minutes. Just solid blood. <laughs> Page 1,478,000, white as snow. Page 8 billion, I don't even have numbers anymore. 8 billion, trillion, quadrillion, now I sound like a kid going up. Cleansed through the Lamb. And he looks and he says, Troy, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the end. As the band comes back up, what can we know about Revelation? What is it teaching us? What it's teaching us is the supreme joy of Christianity is not what Christ offers to us. The supreme joy is Christ Himself. The end that we've studied and all this kind of stuff, it's, it's, it's not about what happens to us. It's about what happens for Christ. The hope of heaven is, it's, it's not that whether we get in or not, that's not the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven is, does Christ get His vindication or not? The more you realize that all of the end is about Him, oddly enough, the more you'll realize the joy of the gospel for you. May those with ears to hear, hear. And those with eyes to see, see. Nonetheless, this we know, we will see the enemy run. This we know, we will see the victory come. So we hold on to every promise Jesus has ever made. He is unfailing. Would you pray with me? What a text, Lord. What a text. God, we've shared the gospel through song. We've shared the gospel through prayer. We've shared the gospel through handshakes and hugs. We're going to share the gospel in the moment through communion. <laughs> God, just that everyone in this room would be enamored with the gospel. That's our hope. Again, not today that they would walk away going, what a fun song, what a cool band, what some neat lights, what, what a weird little church stuck in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> that, none of those thoughts would go through our head. That, God, the only thought that would go through our head is, wow, Jesus is amazing.
And God, for believers, would you stir that up in us? And if there's an unbeliever in this room, God, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would overcome their hearts, that you would break through their resistance towards you, and you would break their knees out of love. And God, today will be the day that they call on you for salvation. They'll repent of their sin and trust in you as the finished work. It is done, Lord of the universe. Lord Jesus, have your way as we worship, as we reflect, even now.